You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning, church. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. While you're doing that, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, but given the growth that we've experienced, the number of people that have come to this church recently, uh, it, uh, I've been, I've been um, urged, not urged, that's not the right word, encouraged by our elders and some of our staff to, um, to do a, a message on giving. And so here it is. If you believe in the ministries of City on a Hill, please give. The end. Mark chapter 1 is where we are at today. Uh, If you know me well, you know that I am a musician. I love music. I love to watch other musicians play music, especially if they're good at it. Not all of them are. Uh, A lot of couples have their sort of date night things that they like to do. Jessica and I love to go to concerts. We love concerts. We love music of all kinds. We love to go and watch musicians do what they do best. Some years ago, uh, I got to, actually not with Jessica, but with a friend, go and see a legendary uh, figure in the world of rock and roll. Um, Not because I really love to listen to him play particularly, but because he's written a lot of really great songs, and that is the one and only Bob Dylan. It was the weirdest concert experience of my life. (laughs) The band came out and started playing Bob came out and sat down at the piano and started singing and playing. They played for almost two hours. He never said anything to the audience at all. And then during the last song, which of course we didn't know was the last song because we didn't have the set list, he just sort of got up at probably three quarters of the way through it. He got up from his piano and he kind of walked over and then sort of turned around and, and then just went off the stage. And that was the end. It was so bizarre. Uh, On top of that, uh, to make matters even stranger, he played a set full of all of his hits, all of the great songs. But apparently, when you play hit after hit for like 50 years in a row, because you know they're on the never-ending tour, I don't know if you know much about him, but they play constantly. When you play these songs over and over again for like five decades, apparently you get very tired of playing those songs and you completely rewrite all of them which he did, and so he played for two hours. Everyone in the crowd knew the words to the songs, but none of the songs were familiar at all. Just completely different versions. It was such a weird night. Dylan, along with being a great writer, and he is a great writer, uh, is also a professing Christian. Some of you may not know this. uh, Several of his song lyrics reflect this. Uh, He's written actually a couple of gospel albums in his time. Uh, He's talked in interviews about his faith in Jesus and his belief in both the Old and New Testaments and how he is most moved by sacred music over so-called secular music. In fact, in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine 2012, he talked about about how what he does is actually not a career but a calling. He says, everybody has a calling, don't they? Some have a high calling, some have a low calling. Everybody is called, but few are chosen. There there is a lot of distraction for people, so you might not even find the real you. A lot of people don't. It's an interesting quote. Everybody has a calling, he says. And as it turns out, at least as it pertains to Christians, 
It's true. The Bible speaks of calling from God quite a bit, actually. And, 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 it, and, and it seems to indicate that everybody has a calling before God if they are a follower of Jesus. Paul, the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, says, For consider your calling, brothers. He says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of what? Your calling to which you have been called. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. Paul says to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Uh, Hebrews 3, 1 refers to this call of God as a heavenly calling. And this calling, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, is irrevocable. It appears that this strange, enigmatic figure in Bob Dylan who believes in a call of God on the lives of all people might be actually onto something. In our text this morning, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, we find yet another enigmatic figure, an even stranger man than Bob Dylan, one who we call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And what we're going to discover this morning, perhaps more than any other human being, is that John had a tremendous calling on his life, a calling that was crystal clear before him that was crystal clear actually before he was ever born, before he was ever conceived. We're going to talk about that this morning, the call of God on his life and what it meant for him and, and, and what it means for us as we look at his life and the way his call worked out. What do we learn from that that we can apply to our own context? Because remember, we all have callings before God if you're a Christian. Let's look uh, at the calling of John in particular. If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1, read verses 2 and 3 with me. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We talked last week about how Mark is introducing us to a new gospel era marked by the arrival of a new kingdom and the announcement of a new king, a king that was long awaited by the people of God, spoken about by the prophets for hundreds of years. And one of the ways that you will know that this king has arrived is by the arrival of a messenger who comes before him to prepare the way for the Lord. That's what the prophets said would happen. You'll know the king is coming when the messenger who precedes him arrives, when he appears. So Mark is beginning his story by showing us that this messenger is about to appear. And what's interesting about the passage is that Mark credits Isaiah for this Old Testament quote, but there's actually more than Isaiah in his quotation. When you evaluate the quote that Mark puts out there, he includes Mar or Isaiah, but he also includes Malachi. This is actually a combination quote of two verses, one from the minor prophet Malachi and another from the major prophet Isaiah. Malachi 3.1 forms the first part of this quotation. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Malachi, speaking about a messenger, talks about how he is going to come before the Lord arrives in his temple, the coming Messiah. Isaiah 40 verse 3 is also present here in this quotation. 
It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Mark has taken these two passages and sort of slammed them together. The question is, why does he only give credit to Isaiah? What is he doing here? This seems like, I mean, if we're just being honest, this seems like an instance where some slick atheist would be like, see, the Bible has mistakes in it, right? But does it... Does it, is this a mistake or is there some, that's how they talk by the way, see, like that. <clears throat> Mark actually is following a rabbinic tradition here. He's combining texts that were thought to be about the same person or concept into one quotation. Keep in mind that the Bible in Mark's day, first of all, was only the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written or assembled yet. Mark is in the process of doing that, and he's one of the earlier writings in the New Testament. Nor did it include chapter or verse references. We love chapter and verse references because they make it easy to navigate the Bible. Mark didn't have that during his time in the ancient world. Uh, That doesn't actually first appear until an English translation of the Geneva Bible in the 16th century. So it's a relatively new tool still in in terms of the length of, of Christianity. So in the ancient world, rabbis who were teaching through the Old Testament had to come up with ways to talk about certain concepts or ideas in shorthand. One of the ways they did this was by combining verses together that pointed towards the same person, place, or idea, and then attribute the whole thing to the most well-known referent point, which in this case was Isaiah. Isaiah is a major prophet. Malachi is a minor prophet. Uh, It's not that... Mark doesn't value Malachi. It's that the wider audience who was reading Mark would have likely recognized Isaiah over Malachi because he's a bigger part of the Old Testament. He's a major prophet versus the minor prophet Malachi. This is a well-known, established practice in the ancient world. So these quotations from the Old Testament, they're important. Mark is telling us something substantial. This forerunner, this so-called messenger who is going to prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness is about to appear. So be ready. And then look at verse four. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This messenger long anticipated by the people of God, spoken of by the prophets, the one who's gonna prepare the way is here and his name is John. John has a calling that is very unique. Everyone has a calling, but John's is in a category of its own. There's only one forerunner. There's only one messenger who comes before the Lord's Messiah, and it's him. Some people will be called to preach and teach. Some people will be called to plant churches. Others will be called to serve as missionaries. Some people will be called to public service, others to education, and still others to military service and medicine and the sciences and various other fields all of which are extremely commendable and important to the fruition, the the flourishing of society. But only one, one human being will be called to be the prophet who serves as the messenger for the Messiah, and it is John the baptizer. The question now is, what is he doing to fulfill his duty to prepare the way for the Lord. The Bible says that he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. What is he doing to accomplish that? Look at verse 4 again. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's method to prepare the hearts of the people of God for the Messiah is to get them to confess their sin, to repent of it, and be baptized publicly as a proclamation of this 
repentance. Now, we don't have time to talk in depth about the stages of repentance, sort of systematically what it looks like. We did that about three or four weeks ago in the Ultimate Road Trip series in a message actually titled The Stages of Repentance. If you weren't here for that, uh, I would encourage you to go give it a listen. It's on all the major uh, podcast platforms as well as YouTube. But you need to understand that repentance is a crucial part of becoming a Christian. In fact, we said in that message that you cannot be a Christian without repentance. It's impossible. It is impossible to identify truly as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ if you've never repented. Repentance is a vital part of walking with Jesus, not only coming to faith in Jesus, but walking with Jesus on a day-to-day basis. And so John, as the forerunner, accomplishes this task of preparing the way by calling people to repentance, and apparently he's very successful at it. Look at verse 5. And all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Tons of people were coming out to him, confessing their sins, being baptized. In fact, I love the the term here for confession. It's the Greek term exomologeo. It's a word that that doesn't just mean to, to reveal something. When we think about confessing something, we think about like making it known, right? You think about like the Catholic little closet you go into, uh, sort of strange. Not necessary either, by the way. Um, when you confess something, it's not simply making it known, but the word actually means to come into agreement with. So when you confess, what you're doing is not only revealing something that was previously not known, but you are saying, yes, God, I agree with you. What I have done is sin and I repent of it. I'm aligning myself with God in his understanding that this is sin. I agree. Yes, confess. That's what it means. And they weren't being coerced into this either. That's another important detail. They wanted to do this. They were drawn to it, right? The question is why? Why were so many people coming out into the country, into the wilderness, to be baptized by this very strange man and confess confess all their sins publicly? I'm going to make the case that it's because what, they, what John was saying to them, his message, his call to them, resonated with them. That it was compelling. It resonated with their hearts. This is why, let me park here for a moment and be a little more personal to our context here at City on the Hill. This is why I'm so committed to the help, hope, and healing of Jesus Christ. It's why I believe so deeply in what we do here throughout the week and on Wednesday nights. People are in pain. I don't know if you figured that out yet. Life is hard, it is full of loss, it is full of brokenness, it's full of regret, and if you're willing to be honest, you struggle a lot more than you regularly let off. You have deep regret over things that you've done and over things that you haven't done that you wish you would have done. And you are more than likely more aware of how bad you are than anyone else in the world. It's like that great Charles Spurgeon quote, Don't be mad if anyone thinks ill of you, for you are way worse than he knows you to be. (laughs) And yet, here's the crazy part about the whole thing. You're intensely aware of how broken and unlovable you are, and at the same time, you want more than anything else to be fully known and fully loved by God and by other people. And those two things feel impossible, don't they? They don't go together. They don't go together. It's very difficult to be fully in touch with how unlovable I am and desperate to be known and loved at the same time. How can I be fully known and loved after everything I've done? 
many of us think. It's almost a paradox. And yet, the promise of God is that when you confess your sins, make it known, come into agreement with him, repent of those sins, turn away, when you pull the veil down, when you take off the mask and you uncover the hidden, ugly, sinful, broken parts, you truly bear it all, you receive not judgment, but grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it's unlike anything that this world can offer you. That's why I'm committed here. That's why I want more people here to enjoy their forgiveness in Jesus Christ, to experience the grace of God that surpasses all knowledge, to understand what living free actually means. There are so many people in the seeker-sensitive movement, in the church growth movement, and they talk all the time about how to grow your church. I get the emails, the webinars, podcasts, seminars, conferences, Come pay $500 and listen to these gurus tell you how to grow your church. And everything they say is nonsense. It's nonsense. You need to be more relevant. You need to dress more relevant. You need to do more practical teaching and less biblical preaching. You need to think of yourself as a life coach, not a pastor. Pastors, that's not a word that people want to hear anymore. You need to be more cutting edge. Listen, I could do all of that. And some of you may really like it. And look at me. None of that will make a bit of difference when you lay awake in bed at night knowing there are parts of your life you've kept hidden that puts you at odds with a holy God. None of it. Doesn't matter how cutting edge, how cool, how hip, how whatever. When you are stricken with shame and guilt and loneliness and feelings of isolation because you are scared to death to make yourself known fully, warts and all, sin and all. None of that other stuff matters. I think relevance is great. I think practical teaching matters a lot. I think our worship team does a heck of a job on Sunday mornings. But more than anything else, I believe it is my job to slap you out of the fairy tale world we love to live in and remind you that more than likely you have sin to deal with because no one else is doing it. No one else is willing to say that to you. And then, and then here's the, the follow-up to encourage you to let it go, to be free, to confess it and move on because it doesn't define you. It doesn't make you unique, certainly. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You're not unique because you're broken. You're not unique because you sin. Most certainly doesn't make you unlovable because God's grace and the blood of Jesus is greater. But you have to come to a point of confession and repentance. That's why I think people were coming out of the woodworks to see John the Baptist, to repent and be baptized. That's why I think many of you drive from all over the Metroplex to be here at City on Hill. You want to be free and you can be. And some of you have tasted it and you know it is a good thing. Now, speaking of dressing relevant, look at verse six. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is not the guy you see on Daystar, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Trinity Broadcast Network is not hiring this man. What is going on here? Why is John dressed like this? There's a couple of reasons probably why. <clears throat> Number one, it indicates that John is not only someone who does ministry in the wilderness, but actually lives in the wilderness. This kind of attire would have uh, not only kept him warm on colder nights, but also protected him from some of the elements uh, as he lived outdoors. But there's something else significant going on here as well. Who else dresses like this 
in the Old Testament. It's almost a spitting image of someone else in the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah. Yes, Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 describes Elijah as someone who wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. John dressed just like Elijah. Now, why is this significant? Because Elijah actually becomes the descriptor of this messenger who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Mark quoted Malachi 3.1. If you keep reading Malachi, you go to chapter 4, verse 5. God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This messenger will be like Elijah. And Jesus even confirms this. Mark chapter 9, we learn that the scribes and religious leaders of his day were having a difficult time believing that Jesus would be the Messiah on account of, at least in part, that Elijah had not come yet. And he was the one that was going to prepare the way. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Of course, by this time, John the Baptist had already been, right? So gone. Uh, They had already dealt with him. Elijah has come and gone. Now, I want you to think about for a moment the gravity of John's call, of the calling of John the Baptist. He's the messenger of whom the prophets spoke. He's the one who will prepare the way. No one else in human history gets this. What a privilege, right? I mean, what a high calling. And John knew this his whole life. Mark doesn't record the details, but Luke tells us that John's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, knew that John would be this special person before he was even conceived. The angel came and told them that. There was no question about his calling. I imagine, personally, I don't know about you, this could be tempting for John in a lot of ways, right? I mean, imagine knowing that you, of all people, are the messenger of the Messiah. Imagine the potential perks, right? You could get out of speeding tickets. You sure you want to ticket the forerunner officer? What's God going to think about that? You could be late to work every day. You're going to be the guy that fires the the forerunner of Jesus? I don't know. You could have errands run for you. You could marry whoever you want. You could do whatever you want to do. You're the forerunner, the messenger. It would be so easy to allow your calling to actually sabotage your character. But John's character remains intact. Let's look at his character for a moment. What does Mark say about the character of John the Baptist? Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's not a shred of arrogance in this at all. The great messenger of the Lord predicted by the prophets destined to prepare the way for Jesus Christ says, don't look at me. I am nothing. There is one coming after me far greater than I. In fact, John says, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. This is a cool detail. This is easy to pass if you don't know Jewish uh, Talmudic history. So the Jewish Talmud is a collection of of, uh, rabbinic interpretation and, and ways of sort of thinking about the Old Testament. And it speaks to the historical background of a rabbi calling a disciple to follow him. In the ancient world, if a rabbi called someone to be his disciple, the disciple was said to have taken the yoke of the rabbi upon him. This is why Jesus uses rabbinic terminology. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, right? You become a rabbi or a disciple of me, the yoke I give you is not going to be that burdensome. Contrasted with the rabbi, 
would have been very burdensome. In fact, a rabbi, according to the Talmud, could compel a disciple to do anything that a slave was compelled to do, except take off his shoes for him. It's the only thing you could not ask of your disciple because it was, this is considered below slave status to take another person's shoes off. John is saying, I, the great forerunner, the messenger who's to prepare the way for the Lord, in comparison to the Messiah, I'm less than even a slave. I don't even value a slave in light of him. John didn't see himself as important. He didn't see him, his ministry as important as the ministry of Jesus, as important as John's ministry was to, to bring people to a place of, of confession of sin and baptizing publicly to proclaim this repentance. John's baptism paled in comparison to the coming Holy Spirit that Jesus would give who would not only bring about repentance but give a new heart, a new spirit, make them alive together in Christ, to have the desire to follow God, the desire to walk in accordance with all of God's statutes and commandments just like the Old Testament prophesied. John was unimpressed with his own significance in light of Jesus Christ, as important as he was, and he was greatly important. Jesus says this, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, he, he is literally, there's no one greater than him born of a woman. His calling was prophesied by the prophets, announced by the angels. He grew up with no question of the validity of his call, and yet despite that, as great as he was, he never allowed his importance of his calling to ruin his character. What did he say in John 3.30? He must increase, but I must decrease. More Jesus, less me. I want to land here and spend the rest of our time here this morning and speak to this, this correlation, this relationship between calling and character. I think there's a tendency in the church today for Christians to see their calling or their unique gifting, we'll just call it pridefully. I mean, that, that is what it is, pridefully. When we discover our calling, if we're not careful, we can start to read our own press a little. We begin, people, we begin to expect people to notice the things that we are able to bring to the table as if it has anything to do with us, right? and to treat us differently as a result of us, to see, it, to see us as special, sort of super Christians. And when that happens, the calling of God actually can sabotage your character, and then in turn, that sabotages your calling. It's a, it's a weird downward spiral. I actually titled this message, Don't Kill Your Calling. As important as it is to understand the calling of God on your life, and God has called you all, if you are a follower of Jesus, to something, and he has uniquely gifted you with gifts of the Spirit to fulfill that calling. I believe that. I believe the Bible teaches that. Every person has a calling on their life. As important as it is to understand that calling, it is equally important for you to maintain your character before God. God might have very big plans for some of you. There could be the next Billy Graham, the next William Carey, right? The, the next superstar in Christian terms in doing mighty things for the kingdom of God in this room. Some of you may have already begun to sense God's call on your life, and that's amazing. Praise God. What a privilege it is to serve God in any capacity. So my warning to you in light of this passage is this. More important than pursuing your calling before God is guarding your heart and submitting your character under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
It's the most important thing that you can do. There's nothing more important. Putting every effort into guarding your heart and protecting your character. Because if you do not, it doesn't matter to what great things God calls you. Your character defects will sabotage them always. You may be destined for great things. There is no calling so great that it is exempt from the devastating results of ungodly character defects in your life. Let me give you a truth, and I want you to think through this for the rest of the morning. Either your calling will help kill your character defects, or your character defects will help kill your calling. Let me say that again. Either your calling will help kill your character defects, or your character defects will help kill your calling. Either the weight, the gravity, of your calling before a holy God will urge you to put to death those things that are incompatible with being in his presence, things like jealousy, insecurity, codependency, lust, rage, the list goes on and on and on. Either your calling will help tear those things down and birth in you humility, or those things will go unchecked and utterly sabotage the things that God wants to do through you in your life and ministry. It's either one or the other. It's, there's no middle ground. It's not a matter of if, but when. So the question becomes for all of us, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Are are you just sort of hoping you're going to beat the odds? Maybe I'll, you know, I'll be the lucky person that's able to continue to pretend to serve Jesus faithfully on the outside, despite the fact that I have all kinds of secret sin on the inside. Maybe I'll dodge a bullet, beat the odds. No one will ever know. Of course, Jesus will know, but no one will ever know uh, here in in this horizontal level, and I'll just get away with it. I, I wouldn't hang my hat on that. Maybe you're hoping that these things will just go away eventually. You know, my problem is that I just need more Bible study in my life. You know, it's not enough on Sunday morning. I need to go, uh, you know, every day, really, it would be ideal. And, and I need to listen to sermon podcasts more and more and more and more and more. And I need to do more. I need to serve more. I need to be in more small groups. And as long as I can just do more Christian things and learn more about the Bible, then I, it'll take care of itself. I won't want to do those bad things anymore. Right? That isn't how any of this works. Your character always will reveal itself. Let me say it again for the people in the back. Your character always reveals itself. The question is, what will your unconfessed sin take from you before that happens? Will it take your marriage? Will it take your family? Will it take your children? Will it take your career? Eventually, it will take your calling as well. But what's it going to take before that? Some of you sit around and wonder why things are so bad in your life and you do nothing to proactively fight against this stuff despite the fact that you're warned over and over and over again all the time, every week. You've never taken a freedom group. Some of you are opposed to it. I don't buy into all that stuff. You will. You just have to lose a lot more before you're ready for it. Some of you will look back at your life and see nothing but long and wasted years. Speaking of long and wasted years, a song by Bob Dylan. 
He said, I think when my back was turned, the whole world behind me burned. Maybe today, if not today, maybe tomorrow. Maybe there will be a limit on all of my sorrow. There can be a limit to your sorrow. There, there will be sorrow in your life. Bad news, you live in a fallen world. No one, no one escapes that. You, you will experience sorrow. But there can be a limit to your sorrow. But not without confession of sin and repentance. Not without a coming into agreement with God, making yourself fully known and turning away. My encouragement to you this morning is, is simply this. Stop hiding. Stop hiding. Walk in grace. Take off the mask. It's going to hurt. It's going to feel embarrassing. And the feeling after that, when people still love you and now know the real you, it's incomparable. And it's here waiting for you. So walk in it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that we find forgiveness of sin in your son, Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Even in our weakest moments, even when we were most unworthy, Christ died for us. We thank you for that. We thank you for forgiveness of sin, newness of life. We thank you that, that we are able to be fully known and fully loved, warts and all. And we thank you for the promise that one day, not this day, at least not yet, but one day you will raise us in resurrection to the newness of life without sin, without the perishable effects of sin, perfect, whole as we were intended to be prior to the fall of all things. Because God, not only your people are awaiting the return of Jesus to bring about redemption, but all of creation groans for it. We long to see you, but in the meantime, God, we worship you and we thank you for every day you give us to serve you. Help us get out of the way to allow you to accomplish your purposes in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.